Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. I'm the lead pastor here at West Hills, and I do mean here uh, because this is the church. The church isn't a building. The church is a people. Amen? It's us. And uh, so welcome to Church in the Park. This is always one of my favorite uh, worship services of the year, and not just because I only have to preach one sermon, uh, and not only because uh, another thing I love about this, I was just realizing as we were singing, we get, you know, it's the only service where you get to publicly shame the latecomers to church. You know, you don't just sneak into the balcony. You got to walk past everybody, the walk of shame. I love it. Uh, no, this it's wonderful to be out in God's glorious creation. It's wonderful to be out in our community here at beautiful Faust Park and uh, to live in a country where we can do this, where we can do church in a public park without being arrested. Praise God. And uh, it's wonderful to be together, as Brian already said and prayed. Uh, as one church to celebrate the church. That's a lot of what this morning is about. And uh, there are lots of things to celebrate about our church and lots of wonderful qualities that make any church uh, great. But this morning, we're going to zoom in on uh, just five qualities as we consider the example of perhaps the greatest church in all of the pages of Scripture, and that's the church at Antioch. We've been studying uh, the book of Acts together as a church uh, this past year, and all the way back in chapter 2, we saw the very first church birthed in the city of Jerusalem, but while Jerusalem may have been the first church, the best church may have just been Antioch. They were uh, certainly the most missional. Antioch is going to serve as the central sending hub for all three of Paul's missionary journeys that we're going to explore in the weeks to come at West Hills. But Antioch was the capital city of Syria. It was the third largest city in the Greco-Roman world, and it was a thoroughly pagan city. It was full of idol worship to false gods until the gospel arrived. And when the good news of Jesus showed up in the church of Antioch, uh, began to be born, it was marked by five qualities that we're going to observe this morning at the end of Acts chapter 11 and the beginning of Acts chapter 13. That's where we're going to camp out. I hope you brought your Bibles with you this morning. Uh, If you didn't, we would love to to give you a Bible if you don't own a Bible at our makeshift info bar, as I said. But uh, I've recruited some readers, some excellent volunteer readers to help us out with the uh, reading of Scripture this morning. So, Griffin and Avery, would y'all come on up, try and uh, get get our kids more actively involved this morning. Would y'all give them a hand for reading for us, Griffin and Avery? And the rest of y'all can go ahead and stand up. Okay, I'm going to hold it for them. Uh, hear the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 11. This is verses 19 through 30. And then uh, chapter 12, verse 25 through uh, chapter 13, verse 3, if you want to follow along. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. 
But there were some, some of the men of Cyprus and Cyrene who, come, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and the great number who believed ter- who believed turned into the Lord. The turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of ch- the church of uh, church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them to all remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, N- and a great and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went off to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he fa- had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught taught a great many people. And Antioch and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now verse 25 of chapter 12. Now in these days prophets came down to Jerusalem and to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers Barnabas, Simeon, uh, who was called Niger Lucius of Cyrene, um, Manaon, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me, Barnabas, and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for church. We thank you for uh, the mission you've called us to as a church and for the great example you've set for us in your word of uh, what a church should be and can be and uh, should want to be. And so, Father, we we pray for our church this morning. We pray that you would use our, our gathering, our corporate worship this morning to transform us and, and make us more into the people that you've called us to be for your glory and for the good and salvation of the world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Okay. Five marks of a model missional church and I want to give credit where credit is due and thank pastor and commentator uh, Tony Morita whose outline of this passage I'm stealing this morning but I I will say I did come up 
with my own three subpoints underneath each of these. And so we're really going to look at the 15 marks of a missional church this morning. The first is effective evangelism. There is no church without effective evangelism. The word evangelism comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means good news. And the church centers on the good news of Jesus, that Jesus loved us so much that despite the fact that we are sinners and we have all failed to give God, our creator and our sovereign, good, heavenly father, the glory that is due his holy name, yet Jesus loved us so much he died on a cross to bear our sins, to take our place so that we might be reconciled to that perfect God our Father, and forgiven our sins and saved. And then Jesus rose from the dead to free us from the very power of sin and death. That's the gospel, the beautiful good news. And according to the Bible, everyone needs to hear this good news and believe it. They need to personally trust in Jesus because Acts 4.12 tells us that there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And so everyone must hear about Jesus through evangelism. But in order for our evangelism to be effective, we've got to learn from the Antiochians. We've, we've got to do three things, all right, three subpoints. First, we've got to speak to people. Verse 19 here says, because of the persecution that arose over Stephen back in chapter 7 and 8, the church was scattered as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. So God had called the church to go to the nations, but they had been sticking to their safe little Christian bubble in Jerusalem. And so God popped the bubble and he forced them to go. Uh, He scattered them, but verse 19 tells us they were still speaking the word to no one except the Jews, even after Uh, The apostle Peter's conversion of the Gentile Cornelius in the first half of Acts chapter 11, most of the church still hasn't gotten the memo that this gospel is not just for the Jews. But in verse 20, we hear there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that is the Greeks, the Gentiles also. They got it. They got it, that, the un, that unbelievers must call on the name of the Lord Jesus in order to be saved. But they can't believe in Jesus if they've never even heard of him. And they can't hear about him unless someone's willing to tell them about him. And there's no such thing as evangelism by osmosis. All these you know, beautiful people on the playground this morning, they, they aren't somehow going to be sanctified by osmosis, by me and you and our kids just mingling and playing amongst them because we don't change people. The gospel changes people. The gospel is a message. It's news. It has to be shared. And so we've got to be willing to be bold and to speak to people as a church. And number two, we've got to speak in understandable terms. Verse 20 says that the church was preaching the Lord Jesus. Thus far in the book of Acts, The church has been preaching Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, because they've been speaking in synagogues to the Jews. But now they're in Antioch, in Gentile territory, where they don't care about the hope of Israel, the Messiah. But this title, Kurios, Lord, that resonated with them. In their pagan mystery religions, the term Kurios was used frequently in reference to a divine god, who could bestow salvation. It was also a title claimed by their Roman emperors to boast of their own alleged divinity. And so the church in Antioch 
not only shared the gospel, but they did so in a way that was intelligible and relevant to the surrounding culture. And so, it's another practical exhortation. If the Spirit does move you and you find yourself on the playground after lunch today, hanging out, sharing the gospel with someone who's never stepped foot in church, even church in the park, you might want to stay away from terms like hypostatic union and penal substitution. You've heard of the the KISS principle in business, K-I-S-S, keep it simple, stupid. It equally applies to our evangelism. You keep it simple. God is supreme. God deserves our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, our lives. And yet we are sinners. We offer him so much less than that. We all fall short. But Jesus is Savior. God so loved the world that he sent Jesus to die for our sins. And faith is sufficient. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It's the gospel. And so we speak, number three, we speak to people in understandable terms with the Holy Spirit. Verse 21 says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed. You notice we hear nothing about the charisma or the greatness, the giftedness of the Antiochian evangelist here. As a matter of fact, we don't even hear their names. Tony Morita says, if you've ever wondered whether unnamed Christians really can make a difference for the kingdom, the answer is yes. These men had no plan, they had no program, no budget, just a zeal for the Lord. In our day of celebrity Christianity, we desperately need to rediscover the world of the men of Cyprus and Cyrene. The most important people in the church aren't always the most famous. The church in Antioch got started because so-called nobodies witnessed to their neighbors. That's it. What an important message for us to hear. That what's important isn't whether or not you're skilled, it's whether or not you're filled. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Your skill might win people to following you, but only God's filling with the Holy Spirit can actually transform people's hearts to follow Jesus. Effective evangelism requires his spirit. Number two, the second mark of a missional church is dynamic discipleship. Dynamic discipleship. Discipleship refers to the process of becoming more and more like Jesus over time. Dynamic means characterized by energy or effective action. And we discover here in Antioch that in order for our discipleship to be dynamic, it's got to be three things. First, It must encourage the work that God is already doing in a person's life. Look back at verses 22 and 23 here. The church in Jerusalem hears about the church in Antioch, and so they send Barnabas to check it out. Now, we've already met Barnabas back in chapter 4. We read this Joseph, nicknamed by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money to the apostles. And then we hear about him again in chapter 9 when Saul, the former persecutor of the church, tried to join the church in Jerusalem, and they initially reject him, but it was Barnabas who showed Saul grace, who vouched for him, and who eventually convinced the others to welcome him in to the community. And so Barnabas is generous. We know he's merciful. He's hospitable. But most of all, he's nicknamed, he's known for encouragement. And that is really all he does here, at first at least, for the church in Antioch. He's, Barnabas is just a glorified cheerleader. 
It says when he came and saw the grace of God, it was God's grace, he was just glad and he just encouraged them. It's a better translation. It encouraged them to remain faithful to the Lord. Because if God, the Holy Spirit, really has to be the one to do all the heavy lifting in a person's life, if God's got to do that major work of renovating a person's heart, then perhaps the best thing that you and I can do and add to the discipleship process is simply to come alongside and to pray that God would do that work and then encourage folks when we see him doing it. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, encourage one another and build one another up. It's so simple, but so significant. And I can't even tell you how grateful I am as your pastor for those of you here who God has blessed with the gift of encouragement and through whom he has personally blessed me and encouraged and sustained me in, in the ministry he's called me to thus far. Bob and Jan and John and Judy, Dennis and Deb, John and Edie, Bill and Karen, Frank and Sarah, Brad and Paula, Brett and Teresa, Brian and Joni, Austin Gooch, Carly Dykstra, Lori McKinney, John Marino, Belinda Wells. I mean, so many of y'all who, who God has used in a mighty way to encourage me. Paul uses the analogy of a body, the body of Christ, to refer to the church. I think of you encouragers like our connective tissue, because y'all have to hold the rest of us together sometimes when we want to just give up. Second, our discipleship must follow the example of exemplary disciples. They say that discipleship is just one Christian who's a little farther along down the path in their walk with Christ, showing the way to a less mature believer. That means, though, that you better be sure that you're being discipled by someone who's on the right path. If they're showing you the way, Jesus warned the Pharisees that they were forming their disciples into twice the sons of hell that they were. A disciple doesn't fall too far from the tree, and you're going to know a tree by its fruit. And in Barnabas's case, the fruit was good because the roots were good. He was planted in the vine, the true vine, Jesus. Verse 24, Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. He was the kind of man that every Christian father wants their son to grow up to be like and wants his daughter to grow up to marry. Be like that. And if you're not yet, then church, find someone else who's farther along and let him disciple you like Paul. Like Paul, who invited others to imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's the call to discipleship. Number three, be encouraging, be exemplary. And thirdly, our discipleship must be invested. We've got to be in it for the long haul. Barnabas was invested here. He was invested enough to know when he needed backup. And so in verse 25, he goes and gets Saul. And then for a whole year, verse 26, they met with the church and taught a great many people. There's no silver bullets when it comes to discipleship. There's no shortcuts to success. No three-month curriculum out there is going to guarantee you that you end up more like Jesus by the end of the study. The recipe for discipleship here is simply invest your life into someone else's. They met with the church. And then invest God's word into them. And they taught a great many people. And then keep doing that over a long, long period of time. They did that for a whole year. Invest your life, teach God's word over a long period of time. That's discipleship. And what's the result? Verse 26, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. 
little Christs. It was a derogatory term initially used by church outsiders. These, these are the first followers of Jesus explicitly charged with the crime of looking like him, of acting like him, of being Jesus's mini-me's. Like if you were on trial for being a Christian, a mini-Christ, would there be enough evidence to convict you? May it be so of us, West Hills. And number three, so we need effective evangelism, dynamic discipleship, and thirdly, the church is called to the ministry of mercy, mercy ministry. Verses 27 and 28, a prophet named Agabus came down from, Jer- from Jerusalem to Antioch and accurately predicted a famine in the days of the emperor Claudius. This is a well-documented uh, historical event, the flooding of the Nile River in the year A.D. 45 that damaged the crops in Egypt that year. The breadbasket of the entire region sent grain prices skyrocketing through the Roman world for years to, to follow. But in the midst of it, verse 29, we hear the disciples in Antioch determined, everyone according to his own ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, the church in Jerusalem. Now, three things to notice about that and to seek to emulate ourselves. Number one, meaningful mercy ministry is selfless. There's about to be this great famine over all the world, including Antioch. And yet we read the disciples in Antioch determined to send relief to Judea. Like gas and grocery prices were out of control. And to be sure, it was hurting their own week-to-week budgets. But they thought to themselves, you know who's really hurting even more than us? The widow down the street. I'm going to buy her some groceries. And the guy who cuts my lawn, I'm just going to voluntarily offer to pay him a little more with these gas prices. They were selfless. Number two, our mercy ministry must be generous. Verse 29 says, they determined everyone according to his own ability to send relief. No one forced them to give. They gave willingly. Moreover, they didn't ask, how much is this going to cost us? They simply gave as much as they possibly could. And 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, each one must give as he has decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And then verse 13 tells us the result of that kind of giving, that others will glorify God because of your generosity that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. So our generosity generates God-glorifying gratitude in others when they see our faith in action, when they see the gospel in action. They see our hope in a Savior, Jesus, who so selflessly and generously gave up everything, gave up heaven, for our sake. And then number three, our mercy ministry should be familial. They determine to send relief to the brothers in Judea, the brothers in Judea. Their financial support here was driven at least in part by their conviction that these Judeans, who they had almost certainly never met, 300 miles away, you know, transportation's difficult, they've never met them, but they had this, this conviction that they were family, they're brothers, they're sisters. 
If a total stranger knocked on my door this afternoon and said, hey, I really need $200, could you help me out? That is a vastly different situation than if my sister called this afternoon and said, hey, I really need $200. I heard uh, James McDonald say once that there's not a single example in the Bible of a church caring financially for an outsider. Uh, Today we throw money at unbelievers, help, hoping that it will bring them to Christ. You know, we, we, uh, we get snow cone trucks and give out stuff for free, hoping maybe that will attract them to Christ. But interestingly, the biblical model is that the church cares for one another within the church, and when the world sees how we care for each other, despite the difference, 300 miles, despite our diversity, This is a primarily Gentile church in Antioch taking care of a Jewish church in Jerusalem despite not even knowing each other. When the world sees that kind of selfless support within the community of faith, they think, wow, there is something different about that community, that Christian community, the church. I want to be a part of a community like that. Number four, a missional church needs like-minded, led-by-the-spirit leaders. Chapter 12 ends with Barnabas and Saul returning from Jerusalem, having completed their service and delivered the donation there. And then chapter 13 opens with the prophets and teachers, the leaders in the church in Antioch. And uh, we discover three attributes here of impactful leadership, that leaders must, number one, be diverse. Diverse. Marita explains Barnabas was a Cyprian Jewish believer. Simeon was called Niger. His name means black or dark. Most believe he's from Africa. Lucian came from Cyrene, that is North Africa. Menaean was uh, brought up in Herod's court related to the royal upper class. He was either a foster brother or a relative of some kind of Herod Antipas. Yes, the same one who killed John the Baptist. And then there was Saul, who brought an academic, professorial dynamic to the group. This is a diverse group of leaders in Antioch. Now, I know what some of y'all are thinking. If you know the leaders at West Hills, and I hope you do, we've got some work to do. Because all seven of y'all are a bunch of old, upper-middle-class white guys. Well, number one, I'm not that old. They let Greg and I on the elder council because we're bald. We just looked apart. Uh, But number two... On a more serious note, I think you're right. I think you're right. Like we do have some work to do here at West Hills. Point taken. We ought to be praying that God would grow us into a more diverse church with more diverse leadership. But number three, I would also remind you of this, that racial and socioeconomic diversity are just two of the many different types of diversity. And when it comes to our personalities, our leadership styles, our spiritual giftedness, even our testimonies, our life experiences, we actually have a very diverse group of leaders at this church, and we benefit greatly from that diversity. And so as a good segue here, I'm excited to announce to you that hopefully we're going to get even more diverse soon because today I get to present to you uh, our candidates for the next elders and deacons here at West Hills. There's been so much time and prayer and discussion 
and work put into identifying and recruiting, begging in some cases, uh, and onboarding these good men and women full of the Holy Spirit and of faith like Barnabas. But I am so pleased to announce them to you in advance of our church vote at the town hall meeting on June 5th. I hope that's on your calendar and you're sticking around after the second service to vote that day. But our candidates for uh, elder, and if you guys are here, if you want to stand, um, that, that'd be great so the church can see who you are. If they don't know you, hopefully you know a lot of these folks already. Our, church, our candidates for elder, Eli Sandhouse, guys back there, Taylor Keene, Taylor's right here in the middle. Uh, our candidates for deacons, deacon of finance, Mark Hinderlong. Is Mark here? No, he's in Florida. Uh, deacon of men's ministry, John Dozier. In the back. Deacon of women's ministry, Jody Gross, right here in the front. Deacon of seniors ministry, Sally Arvison. Sally here? I haven't seen her. Uh, deacon of community needs, Terry Weaver. There's Terry. And Deacon of Corporate Prayer, Bill and Anna Connick. Y'all here? Right over there. Okay. And replacing our outgoing Deacon of Hospitality, Emily Mitchell, who has graciously and faithfully fulfilled her two-year term, is going to be Brad and Paula Baum as our new heads of hospitality right there. Thank y'all. So before we even vote on these good folks on June 5th, would y'all join me in thanking these brothers and sisters for even being willing to step up and serve the church in all these different, diverse ways. Can y'all thank them? Appreciate y'all. Uh, number two, our leaders must be like-minded. And that's the picture that we get of the Antiochian leaders here in verse 2, that they were worshiping the Lord together with one heart. Despite all their diversity, they were united in purpose and in spirit and in faith. It is good for leaders to be diverse when it comes to our personalities, our spiritual giftedness, but we can't be too diverse when it comes to things like our theology, our philosophy of ministry, who is Jesus what is the gospel? Why do we exist as a church, our mission? Uh, where are we headed as a church, our vision? We must be like-minded about such things. And then number three, our leaders must be led by the Spirit. Most important of all, led by the Spirit. Verse two, the Holy Spirit said to them, set apart for me. That's the only way that we stay unified amidst such diversity. We must collectively as a church and especially as leaders be led by the Spirit. Lastly, number five, the missional church must be selfless in its sending. Selfless sending is a mark of a missional church. And being a selflessly sending church means three things. Number one, it means we must be submissive. We must pray and listen for the Lord's direction. Verse 2, when they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, God spoke, and they listened. They expected God to speak, and they knew enough about God to know that when he does, oftentimes he calls us to uncomfortable things. So they had submitted themselves to the Lord. God, not my will, but yours be done going to keep open hands in prayer here, whatever, whatever you call us to, Lord. They were submissive. Number two, we must be sacrificial. 
Submissive and sacrificial. Sacrificial, God said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. These were the two most important leaders in the church. I'm just imagining praying together with my fellow elders at our next meeting next month and the Holy Spirit saying, set apart for me Will and Thad and Brian for the work to which I have called them. All three of our pastors on staff here, God's calling us to go plant a church elsewhere. Marita says, the church sent their best on mission. The Antioch church stepped out in faith and made a sacrifice. That's what missionary churches do. They reflect the missionary heart of the Father who sent heaven's best, Jesus Christ, for the good of the nations. The Father sent his Son that we may be saved, and now he sends us that others may be saved. It's a good so lastly, we've got to be submissive, sacrificial, and last, we must be supportive of missions. We all have to support the work of missions. Verse 3 says, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. They did it immediately. No second guessing, they obeyed. Paul and Barnabas received the blessing of the Antiochian church. And while we don't hear about it explicitly, you can rest assured that they weren't sent out empty-handed either. This was a missional partnership. They're, again, Antioch is going to be the hub of, of their missions, and they're going to report back. Uh, after every all three of the journeys, they're sent out, they come back. This is their sending supportive church. It's a partnership, and here's what that means. It means we're all missionaries because we are all called to take part and God's great commission work to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. We've all got a part to play in that huge job. For some of us, that means that we will be selflessly sent. Some of you, even here this morning, I pray, might be the ones physically traveling to the ends of the earth in the months and the years to come. God might call some of you to that. For others, it may mean selflessly, selflessly staying and watching those other people get the joy of being able to go and take the gospel to all these new places and new people while you're stuck here in gospel-saturated St. Louis so that you can support them in their ministry to the nations through prayer and financial support. For many of us, that's what our role will be. But both the sent and the supporters are missionaries who play their part. So, as we wrap up, encourage you to prayerfully consider this morning, what part is God calling you to play this morning? What part is he calling us to play as a church this morning, collectively? West Hills, may we be a missional church like the church at Antioch. May we be an effectively evangelizing, dynamically discipling, mercy ministering, led by the Spirit, selflessly sending church, who makes disciples of all the nations, all for the glory of God. Amen.